I am Samantha Smith. I go by Sam. I am the other half of Samurai. As Jackie, you're, this is the wittiest joke I have heard in so long. So, so, um, so I have been here at CCSE, well, not here, but I've been at CCSE for about, about the 30 years we've been a church. So we could, they got a church building in May, and Kevin and I started coming in August. So I think almost from the very beginning. And I do, I feel like I have grown up here. Um, we were in our early 20s when we started at CCSE. We didn't have children yet. Um, but now we have three. So we have Gabe, he's 27. And he's married to the lovely Alyssa in the back. And, and Colleen is 25. And she's also in the back. And she's married to Carlos Martinez. And, her, and his beautiful family's back there too. Well, and so is Sharia. This is mom. Like, it's a family affair around here. So, but then, and I have a younger daughter. She's 11. And she's still single. But when she was three, when she was three, she was hoping to be married by 10. So she's an old maid. So, you know. And all three of these children of mine are a blessing to my heart and uh, much prayed for. Of course, deeply loved. I should say all five of them, with Cardos and Alyssa as well. And they're amazing people, and I recommend them. So if you don't know them, you should get to know them. So, um, <clears throat> I've been involved in women's ministries uh, in some form from almost, I think, the beginning, when from the beginning of the time of women's ministries. <laughs> so, um, And... I was young, I, much like Jack. I, I remember when Jackie started coming, and I was also pregnant. I, however, was married. But <laughs> so, but, but it was so, I don't know, but there was something so funny between us because we would just look at each other from across the room. I remember just looking at Jackie, and she would be looking at me. I mean, we never spoke. And so it's just like... So I don't know if that's when you started to be afraid of me. I don't know. But <clears throat> so, so um, <laughs> she did. You guys, this is going to take so long because <laughs> she had it a long time ago. She had us in women's ministry. She had us broken up into like small groups of our own. And Jackie was informed that she had to be in my group. And apparently she cried. <laughs> and like, and so she called me. She's like, I'm going to be in your group. And I cried about it. I'm like, you cry at me? What? And I laughed so hard because I was the least intimidating out of all of them. And I'm like, the, I was the youngest. I was the, probably the quietest. I, I, I don't know. I'm like, well, if you're scared of me, I don't know what to tell you. But, <laughs> so like, but then after I laughed at her so hard and long, she didn't, she wasn't scared anymore of me. But anyway. I love women's ministry, and um, I just I love being with women, and um, I'm interested in every facet there is to be a woman. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so weird because you know because I am one, but but I but everything that comes from it, being a daughter is interesting to me. Being a sister, a wife, a mother, and being a friend, all these things are very interesting to me, and I feel invested in those relationships in my life, but in your lives too. And um, if I know you, <laughs> if I know you enough, I wanna know how are you in those areas of your life. 
Oh. So that is my very brief introduction. I think I have lot, I think I have a lot to say, but I'm going to try to not be boring to you. And I'm really hoping your dinner is not going to put you to sleep. And but if it is, if, if you do go to sleep, please just say it was the dinner, and not me. And let's pray. <laughs> so. Jesus, you again, you are the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. You put the stars in the sky. You created something from nothing. And you are great. God, and I know you know we're here. I know you are amongst us here. Lord, I just pray that you do pour your spirit out on this place, that the air would be thick of you. Lord, you are a mere whisper away from us at any moment, but tonight I just ask that you would be even more tangible than that. Lord, I just ask that whatever is spoken here tonight comes from your spirit, from your heart, and that anything else be burnt away. God, that is minister to one another. Lord, open our ears to hear what you have to say tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I was watching a movie. Um, I think it was last week. I was doing my nails. Like I think it was last week. They're not looking too bad. Um, and I think it was called Midnight in Paris. It was on Netflix. And it starred Owen Wilson. <laughs> and I had never seen it before. And it was about this guy, and he was a writer. And he was fixated on the 1920s. And in the movie, he kept saying, it was the golden age. And he found himself, somehow, he was transported back in time to the 1920s. And he met many of the artistic greats, like Picasso and um, the Fitz, well, F. Scott Fitzgerald and and he was amazed and uh, humbled and intimidated, maybe even. But he also, well, he's engaged to be married to a real shrew, but um, <laughs> he also meets a woman in the 1920s, and she is like everything he could dream of. And she's living in the roaring 20s, and it's the golden age, right, according to Owen Wilson's character. But she loves the 1890s. And she calls it the golden age. And, <laughs> and by the end of the movie, as, as they have their adventures and they are in the 1920s and they're in the 1890s, and at the end of the movie, he realizes that the perfect place and time is really subjective. And that he really needs to be content in his own place and his own time and to find joy where he's meant to be. And I like the movie because I'm like that. <laughs> I, sometimes I, I wish I was born in another, born in another time. I, I would prefer a time that's peace, of peace and of general godliness. And maybe I would like to live a little house on the prairie kind of life. But then I remember that indoor plumbing <laughs> is important to me. <laughs> and so then I think, well, maybe the 40s or 50s. But then I think, oh, there was that war situation at that time. So maybe I don't want to live then either. 
I was born to this time. You were born to this time. And this is not an accident. And God has not somehow overlooked us or, or missed us or, <laughs> or like it's just happenstance. There is purpose for us here. Esther, at her time, she's living in extreme luxury when word reaches her about Haman's treachery and Mordecai's grief. After Mordecai reveals um, to her servant what's happening in the world and asking for her help, her first reaction is to give an excuse why she can't help her people. And we've talked about this like several times already, right? That she's being scolded. <clears throat> and her reasons are real and they are valid. I mean, you know, you, it's the natural instinct we want to preserve our life. You know, I'm sorry? Oh, you're just talking. Um, her reasons are real and their value are valid. Um, and Mordecai sends her a rebuke anyway because her perspective needs to be changed. Um, in Esther chapter 4, it says Mordecai sent this reply to F Esther. We've all heard it already three times. Now this is so forth. <laughs> Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief will come for the Jews and will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for a time like this? Though Mordecai, um, or through Mordecai, Esther is now in possession of knowledge. <clears throat> And she's in possession of knowledge of what is going to happen coming up in the future. And he reminds her that she has the means to potentially change the outcome of what will happen if she's willing to set aside her fear and risk her life for her people. Tony Evans said, Few people truly connect the context of verse with how they are using it. Esther was being scolded for her self-indulgent, self-preserving uh, mindset. Esther was being reproved for her living large and embracing royalty over service. Through these telling words, Mordecai was reminding Esther that she had been chosen to set aside her own interests and to let go of her own ambitions and to face an, an enemy full on. She was to risk her life and her legacy with no guarantees of a positive outcome. That's the for such a time as this, Esther was challenged to accept. And that's the for such a time as this, God also sets before you. <sighs> Esther now has a purpose that surpasses her imagination. And in that time, in that place, she didn't know what was going to happen. And we live in such a time. We live here and now for such a time as this now. And I feel like we live in unprecedented times. We are coming out of a global pandemic. We are seeing governments react and change as a result. And this is not only national, this is global. And no matter what your politics are, it is difficult to deny that three years ago is different than today. Now, of course, I mean, I'm kind of old, but not too old. <laughs> and I know that the world has gone through times of disease and famine, 
but there's more turmoil now than I've personally seen. And I think it's just amped up. I, I think that we haven't seen everything converging all at one time. And it makes me think of other scriptures in the New Testament describing the last days before Jesus returns to judge the earth. I'm forgetting to breathe. Hold on. How, how many recordings do you think has me saying that? <laughs> so, so many of them. <sighs> okay. We are clearly in the last times as defined by the New Testament writers. I, be, I believe Paul said, somebody said, that at, at the resurrection of Jesus, the end times were beginning. But so clearly now, 2,000 years later, we're really far down the road. And they believed they were approaching the end times as well. They were looking for Jesus to come back. But the scriptures, are, God is so gracious to us because in scriptures, he hasn't left it to our imagination of what the world would look like at this time, at the approaching of, of Jesus coming again. Second Timothy says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends and be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. And Second Peter says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promises of Je that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has been the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth from the water and surrounded it with water. And even Jesus got in on the act. <laughs> Jesus said, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Don't be frightened, you guys. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So, well, also, I guess there's also Jude. In the last times there will be mockers following after, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. I think... We live in the last times. We live in a time of great fear. The fear is blowing in the wind. The sense of peril and doom feels heavy in the air. Do you guys feel that too? I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm the only one. I feel like for me, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Something's coming. I feel it. I don't know what it is, and I don't know exactly when, but in my bones, I know it's not good. It's perilous. 
We live in an upside-down, backwards-thinking world where every wicked thought is not only to be tolerated, but is to be celebrated and given honor. And woe to you if you don't. And godliness and holiness is deemed evil. And those who love what God calls good are also evil. We live in a time where logical thinking is wrong because we live in a soundbite world. Deception is everywhere and it's madness. I feel crazy often. <laughs> Anyone with an opinion that's different than yours is an enemy. This type of thinking is not necessarily one, on one side of the po political aisle either. There is equal opportunity and equal blame here. And the result is fear, anger, depression, hopelessness. And that is also blowing in the wind. And there is no one that I know who's immune to it. So what are now are we supposed to do? What we need right now, one thing, we need the hope of Jesus. He is our only remedy. He is our only rescue. True disciples of Jesus will have different perspective than those who don't see the world through the lens of Jesus Christ. We look at things differently. But in perilous times, we are like Esther. We're looking to self-preservation. And it's reasonable. But as a Christian, not recommended. And we need our perspective changed. Where do you land and stay in response to adversity or danger? What I mean is, after that first knee-jerk reaction, that first knee-jerk emotion, where do you stake your tent and decide to live? Do you live in fear or anger or frustration? Are you hopeless or depressed? Or do you change it <laughs> or seek Jesus to change it into faith and joy, contentment, hope, trust? There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who follow Jesus and those who don't. So what's your perspective? Where are you? Where have you, I'm going to say, staked your tent, and that's super wrong. It's also not stuck to your tent. I don't know. Where did you put your tent? <laughs> <laughs> what's your worldview? How do you view the world? Some people think that man is basically good. Like, this is a worldview. This is... And people think, man is basically good, and if we allow people enough time, then people will eventually do the right thing, or at the very least, they'll have the right intention, even if their circumstances won't allow them to do what's right. right? Does that make sense? That, that the circumstances are to blame for man's sin. The second worldview says that mankind is basically wicked, and that given enough time and opportunity, they will only fulfill their own desires regardless of whether all their needs are met. Those who hold the first view have no need of God, and they're constantly disappointed and surprised by the condition of mankind at large. Because they feel people are good, 
It must be so disappointing when people exhibit their evil. But those who hold the second of you, they expect wickedness in the world. And they understand that we are never quite good enough. And that there's a need for someone to save us. We know the true condition of our hearts and minds. We know the secret thoughts we have, the anger we harbor, the imaginary conversations we have those, with those who have wronged us, typically in the shower. <laughs> we understand the fear and dread that take over and our helplessness to change it. Romans 3, 10 um, through 12 is very clear on, the, on a biblical worldview in this case. It says, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who, do, who does good. There's not even one. Not even one, you guys. In this room, not even one of you is good. <laughs> Esther, from the outside of life, a life of beauty and affluence and even luxury, she wanted for nothing. No one in the palace knew who she was, really. Under Mordecai's advice, she had kept silent on where she came from and who her people were. And yet, her life was in as much danger as any other Jew's was. So one thing we can learn from Esther's story is that regardless of the privilege we have in our culture or our circumstances, we are not immune to the enemy who targets God's people. We have a very real enemy. We have an enemy that is so powerful. He's more powerful than us. And he's dedicated to our destruction even more than we are dedicated to our preservation. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, be, a, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. <clears throat> I, I had a dream. I had a dream a few years ago. And as I was sleeping, I found my, like, I made my dream, I found myself in an alley. And in the alley was a gray man and a man all in black. Like, that there's no features. It was almost like maybe he had hoodies on, but, but there's no face or anything, right? So it was a gray man and a black man, a man in black. And I understood that the gray man was the world and the black man was Satan, and that the man dressed in black, right? So, and that the gray man was getting victims to bring to the man in black to devour them. And then the scene shifted, and I was watching this happen, right? They had brought in a victim, and then the scene shifted to a church. And the gray man was now bringing children. And, I, and, and in my dream, I had a cross on. And they brought in a little child. And I knew the cross was the only thing that saved me. 
It was the only thing that was keeping me safe. And so I gave it to the little child who then ran away. And I woke up because they both then turned and looked at me. <clears throat> and when I woke up, I knew I just felt like this was from the Lord to me, telling me the world is in cahoots with the enemy. And he's after us for no other reason than to devour us, to destroy us, to kill us, to have us have no legacy. Our only savior is Jesus. And we must be about the business of giving Jesus away. And furthermore, they're after our children. If we live in unprecedented times, if we are living in a time that is like no other, if we live in the last days as the Bible describes, and if we call ourselves Jesus followers, and I'm saying Jesus followers and not Christians on purpose, if we follow Jesus, then we need to be watchmen and recognize the times we live in. And we have to recognize and understand the plots of the enemy. He's after us. But it's so easy to pretend all is well, to be distracted by all of our toys and technology. We were locked in our houses two years ago, and Netflix was off the charts. That's like anything, that's what everybody was talking about. Tiger King. <laughs> I don't know, whatever else it was, I don't know. But, but we anesthetized ourselves to what's happening that the world is changing. God has called us to higher things than to be the ostrich that buries their head in the sand. He didn't intend for us to permanently camp out here in this, on this planet. We are not meant for here. We're not supposed to find our permanent residence here. We were made to imitate Jesus. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, I am guilty as anybody else. There's, I have bad posture because I'm like this. And I love the politics of the day. I'm very interested in everything that's going on. But the reality is, is what eternal value does it have? What keeps us from following Jesus full out? What is it for you? Is it fear, pride? Is it your distraction? Is it your denial? I think sometimes maybe we just give lip service to Jesus, but our hearts are far from him. I know I'm guilty of that from time to time. Jesus said in Matthew, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. It's for nothing, he's saying. And your teachings are only human rules. They are missing it. And that is sobering, and we need to listen. Jesus is talking about the religious leaders of his day, and those people should have recognized him first, but it applies to us, too. Earlier, I mentioned that Esther had been given a full measure of knowledge and, 
and she was put into a place of, to potentially affect change. She didn't know if she could, um, but she needed to be willing to put aside the things that she was afraid of. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were getting cent given centuries of knowledge, and, they <laughs> and that should have inspired them to embrace their long-awaited Messiah. They should have been able to recognize him. They should have been the first. But they could not put aside their preconceived ideas or their fear of being replaced and the potential loss of their position. Is that what keeps you far from Jesus? Is it lip service, but your hearts are far? It's okay, we have Jesus who can help you with that. But maybe we don't follow Jesus with our entire heart because of the other side of the same coin. Maybe we just left our first love. Revelation 2, 2 through 5 says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate the wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. <laughs> You'll be set aside as Jackie talked about. We have forgotten the sweetness of our Jesus, and we've taken his love and his grace and his mercy, his compassion, we've taken it for granted. That's just always there for us. We continue, continue to do our Christian duty because it's comfortable, it's what we've always done, it's just the right thing to do. We know a lot of things, and we have a nice, pretty veneer outside, but underneath our relationship with Jesus is just like, blah. And I'm guilty of this, too. When we are in this condition, how are we any different of the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Jesus rebuked those guys calling them whitewashed graves full of dead men's bones. <clears throat> Jesus also said in Matthew 24 that because of the wickedness, increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This first came across my attention probably maybe 10 years ago, maybe it's not been that long. And it bothered me. It still bothers me. This is serious. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I, to me, that it assumes that you loved him once. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We who believe Jesus is who he said he is and have committed to following him, we must, must, must be willing to follow him no matter what life is throwing our way, no matter what he's throwing our way. And we need a revival. To revive is to return to consciousness or life, to become active or flourishing again. 
We need a Lazarus moment. We need Jesus. Actually, he's already doing it. We need to listen to Jesus standing outside of the tomb of our own religious making, and he's calling our names. Come out. Wake up. We need open ears and open hearts to respond to that call and a willingness to, of the Spirit to do what he asks and to go where he leads. Esther's an example of us, or to us, in going to battle to save her people. She didn't pick up a sword, she didn't carry a spear, and stab all her enemies, but she battled in the spirit realm. She asked for prayer support as she fasted and she prayed before she went to see the king. And she was absolutely putting her life at risk. I, I feel like it's important to say she had valid concern. It was reasonable her, for her to feel the way she felt. God was calling her to higher things, though. And she learned to count on him to be successful in her endeavor to save her people. She was called to such a time as then. My question, though, is, is what has God called us to be in such a time as this? What has he called you to be in such a time as this? Ephesians 5, 14 through 17 says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We need to wake up and see the world around us clearly. We need to be wise about the time we live in. We, we must be willing to enter into the battles before us. This is something, I think, Janet said, hey, will you teach? I said, yes, and I knew exactly what I wanted. I think I've been wanting to teach this for two years. I have felt all the feelings. <laughs> I have been afraid, very afraid. I have felt helpless. I have felt frustrated. I have felt anger, and I am frequently confused. I am cynical and jaded. And I'm angry sometimes. I just am. And and those times that I'm really feeling all the feelings, I wonder, am I doing everything that I should be doing to affect change in the world that's around me? I feel helpless to do anything. I'm wondering, how am I supposed to stand up against those things that I strongly, or stand for those things that I strongly believe in? I don't know how, really. And it's overwhelming to think of like that and the magnitude it's large. I can't change the sin in the world. I can't adopt all the babies. I can't, I can't stop the wickedness that surrounds us. And when I think so large that way, it only makes the fear and anxiety and the anger greater. I needed to change a perspective. I realized that once the Jesus like, stop, stop it. He told me or showed me my priorities were 
really mixed up. And even my identity was mixed up. I'm not an American first. I'm not. I'm not a wife first. I'm not a mother first. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ first. I want to be a devoted disciple of Jesus. I want to be Peter, and I want to be Mark, and, well, Luke, I don't think. But you know what I'm saying. I want to be the disciple like that who just followed him around the countryside, going where he went. I follow Jesus. That's first. And then everything else has to fall in line after that. Everything how I'm a wife, how I'm a mother, how I'm a friend. I want my perspective and my priorities to be in line with God. I don't want to deviate off the path of that. And when my eyes are turned toward Jesus, when I look full in his wonderful face, then the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And when my eyes are focused in that correct place, the fear, the doubt, the confusion fades away, and in its place are peace, joy, and contentment. Super easy words to say. (laughs) Right? Like, I'm just like saying all my words. I know it's hard not to be distracted by all the noise of this world. <laughs> this world is loud. And that distract us, distraction leaves us ill-equipped to do what God has asked for us, of us. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can hope to stand up against our enemy who seeks to, do it, who seeks to keep us from doing what God calls us to do. Charles Spurgeon said, to be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in this world. It is a battlefield. Neither must he reckon upon the friendship of the world, where that would be enmity toward God. His occupation is war. As he puts on piece by piece of the panoply provided for him, he may wisely say to himself, this warns me of danger, This prepares me for warfare. This prophesies opposition. It feels so dramatic to say, we are meant to be warriors for the cause of Christ. But the fact remains, we are called to war. Like, we're just like, we're ladies, and we like the pretty things. I think most of us, like, I don't want to go to war. I no, really don't. But God has called us to battle. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. 
And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm. <laughs> then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always be, keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So if our enemy is operating in the spiritual realm, and he is, right, it stands to reason that we need spiritual weapons to fight our war. God has equipped us with full armor. What are we called to? We are called to wake up, wake up, and get dressed. And we're going to dress in our spiritual armor. There are no jammy days in the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's how you get to Tiger King. So, I'm like, I'm, I didn't watch that, but it seemed like it was silly, so I guess I'm picking on that. So I apologize if you loved it. I don't know. So anyway, we choose every day. We must choose. We should choose. God asks us to choose every day to be dressed for battle. Not so we can go running across battlefields, but so we can stand against our enemy who seeks our destruction. The first thing we put on is truth. The belt of truth holds up everything. Without truth, it's chaos. <laughs> One commenter mentioned that the belt of a soldier properly, if he's had it properly um, put on, it held everything up. Like, so without the belt, the soldier's garments would like, fall like long and fall, you know, because back then they wore the skirty things. <clears throat> but if that, without that belt, they would trip him up and they would slow him down. In the same way, God's truth removes from us any confusion and uncertainty so we can move forward. We won't be tripped up. We'll recognize a lie. This is so contrary to our culture, though. Truth is subjective, but that's illogical. <laughs> you can't. Subjective truth is like an oxymoron. Those two, two things don't go together. Truth is not dictated by opinions or feelings. Real truth cannot be changed. What is true and doesn't change from person to person either. Now, there's opinions and and there's feelings, but that's not necessarily true. If I said right now, my daughter's at home eating ice cream, that may or may not be true. Maybe I just don't know what's really happening, right? But truth is truth. I might not want her to eat ice cream, but that doesn't mean that she's not eating it. You, know what I mean? you see where I'm going with that thought? <laughs> She might say to me, I didn't eat ice cream, but the chocolate around her lips would tell me different, right? <laughs> so, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 
But someone else might say, no, no, there's many ways to get to God. These cannot both be truth statements. Either one is true and one is false. You can, they can't, can't both be both. Our culture wants it both ways. <clears throat> when we operate in truth, so much cluttered thinking and confusion goes away, and our thinking is cleared up. Like, there's orderly, it's logical. I feel like Spock, that's illogical. <laughs> but like I said, I'm a jaded woman now. So, <laughs> next, after our belt, we're holding everything up by the truth of God's word. Truth is as God sees it, not as we see it. Next, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate is going to protect the heart and the lungs and all that good, gooey stuff in there. Now, we can live without arms or legs, but we can't live without our hearts and lungs and our kidneys and the gooey things. God has called us to be holy people. He has called us to be righteous people. He has not called us to be happy people. We are to be holy and righteous, which brings joy different. And it's not because he's super strict and he wants to be a party killer. That's not why. But because living in a right standing with God is protection for us. It is a breastplate. Protects our heart. Protects how we breathe. Right standing in the Lord comes from putting our faith in him. This is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and I don't want to be misunderstood at all seeing that we have to live some righteous life like by following all the rules. Read your Bible for a minimum of 20 minutes a day, and you better be spending all that time in prayer as well. And go to church and be nice to people. Never get angry, right? How many things can we add to that list? That is not what this is saying. To live a righteous life is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and rely on the Holy Spirit to show you what righteousness means. Supernatural. <clears throat> when we recognize the holiness of the Lord and in humility choose to see ourselves in the light of who he is, then comes peace. And the last thing we put on is our shoes. Before we head out to battle, so our feet are fit with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Shoes allow us to travel more easily and to go where we want to. Now, this morning, I, have a, I chose the shoes I wanted to wear because I have a cute pair of tennis shoes, but they have holes in them. So they're nice and airy, so they're not so smelly. But it's raining outside. They're not practical for the weather. So I chose my little booty things. I'm going to be warmer. I can get around easier. I'm going to be more comfortable. <laughs> Shoes are important. They help us to travel more easily. I think of summertime and being a little kid and running across the street in my bare feet and burning and then trying not to let my feet really touch the ground. Shoes change everything. <laughs> they really do. Shoes prepare us to go where we're called to go. And if we have our shoes on all the time, we won't have to hesitate. And we, as Jesus-following women, have a message to share to the world. 
And we have to be prepared to scurry along and go do that. We need to be ready at all times to share the message of our good and gracious God. Sometimes I'm driving in my car and I might see somebody on the, on the side of the road or I see somebody driving and something about them catches my attention and I wonder, are they going to hell? Chances are they're going to hell. How many countless people do you see on the side of the road in your life, people you know well, how many of them are going to hell? They died today. Our time is short. We don't know when. We have a message to share. We have a Jesus. And our world needs him. There are so many that are headed the wrong way. But if we have good shoes on, we can pursue them easier and maybe climb on counters and pray for them. <laughs> now, when I go out, I'm going to grab my purse and go out. But when we're going to battle in the spirit, spiritual world, we're going to take our shield of faith with us and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The shield guards us from the attacks of the enemy. He whispers lie to us, and they sound so Believable. Satan is the father of lies. It's all he does is lie. <clears throat> I think of the shield, I think of like those Roman movies, maybe you watch them. It's not like a little round shield they're talking about, but it's that big one. And then when they put them together, it is a barricade that can hardly be broken through. And even the arrows, the flaming arrows, they're protected from them. That's the shield, our faith. Now the sword. The sword is our only offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word covers everything. It is the only source of truth for those who follow Jesus. It is a guidebook to righteousness, and it has battle plans. Again with Charles Spurgeon, he said, we have no orders to be quiet and to take matters easily. No, we are to pray always and watch constantly. The one note that rings out from the text is this, take the sword, take the sword. No longer is it talk and debate. No longer is it parley and compromise. The word of thunder is, take the sword. The captain's voice is clear as a trumpet, take the sword. No Christian man here will have been obedient to our text unless with clear, sharp, and, sharp and decisive firmness and courage and resolve, he takes the sword. We must go to heaven, sword in hand, all the way, take the sword. On this command, I would enlarge. May the Holy Spirit help me. We aren't left here on this earth as victims of circumstance or left helpless with no choice but to endure. We are warriors of the living God. Take up your sword. Stop fighting battles that are not yours to fight. 
Stop fighting your husbands and stop fighting your children and stop stabbing your friends or other believers you don't like or agree with. Take up your sword. Our enemy is spiritual. We work in a spiritual realm. And there's a price to pay when you fight your ally. We are supposed to be lockstep with each other, shields together, faith strengthening faith. Take up your sword and stop using it to battle someone you're not supposed to be battling. Your brothers and sisters are in the Lord are fighting the same war you are. Their battles may look different. You may not like them. You may disagree with it, but they still battle on, and you don't get to say what their battle looks like. In the end, though, the battle belongs to the Lord, and he has declared that through him, we are overcomers. 1 John 5 says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The world is falling apart right in front of our eyes. But Jesus has a plan. He's coming. Jesus is coming. He is the victor. He's coming on the white horse. He is coming as king and conqueror. He is coming. He's coming for us. Janet said that Mordecai didn't know what was coming for him, that he was just faithful in what he was, had at the moment. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. He is the victor. He is the overcomer. And through us, or through him, we overcome too. There is no better news. There's no better news than that. In 1 Peter, I'm sorry, I don't know what chapter. However, 1 Peter says, the end of all things are near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do it so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.